How many of you would consider yourselves movie buffs? Show of hands, just you enjoy. Yeah, uh, so a, a good portion of you. You know, uh, I'm not the world's biggest movie buff person. I'm more of a TV show type of guy. I've been binging uh, Wicked Tuna recently. It happens about once a year for about a month. I just get locked in on these bluefin and I can't shake, shake it. But uh, uh, the types of movies though that are my favorite are the sci-fi thrillers that leave you scratching your head, kind of been like, wait, 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 what was going on? What happened? You got to watch it like a second or third time. Movies like Fight Club, we don't talk about that here uh, because it's church, not because it's Fight Club. Um, Movies like Tenant, where you're just like, wait, it's forward, backwards, some type of continuum. But arguably my favorite movie of all time is the movie Inception. How many of you guys have seen Inception before? Uh, Not a Mother's Day movie by any way, shape, or form, but this movie is dope. If you haven't seen it, put the kids to bed, watch Inception. And the whole movie's built on this idea of Inception, which is levels of dream in which uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, him and his company, figured out that they can implant ideas. And throughout the movie, every character, has what's called a totem. And this totem, it's like a top that he spins or a dice that you roll, something that represents reality, but it has to kind of fall or or falter to show that you're back. And so if you've seen Inception, what kind of happens uh, going through the whole movie and then it gets to the final scene. At the final scene of the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio walks home and walks outside to play with his kids. But before he does that, he spins this top. He spins his totem and it just starts spinning and spinning and spinning and it kind of like wobbles just real quick and then it just goes black, but it doesn't show the totem actually falling. And then that was, just, that was it. That was the end of the movie. And for like days, weeks, months, years to this day, it's the second most Googled confusion of any movie. Is it real or not? Is he still dreaming or not? To the point where Christopher Nolan, the director, was literally had to put restraining orders against people because they wouldn't stop bothering him about what the answer was. And so then people start saying, well, which is it? Is he still dreaming? It's a reality. We need to know the truth. And so then Christopher Nolan does what every good artist type says, well, what do you think it means? And then just walks away. It's interesting because I think some of us, we, we, we know deep down that we desire for there to be a truth. Well, which way is it? Is it black or white? Is it up? Is it down? Yet many of us also walk through that way of life your view of, of morality, of purpose, of meaning. And you've gotten to the point in your, perhaps we call your, your worldview, in which you're kind of just saying, well, it's just whatever I think it is. It's whatever I feel like it is. I, I just kind of make it up as I go. And that's kind of where we've been starting this series through 1 Corinthians, is this idea is that your worldview, we all have one, is not something that you can just make up. It's not something that if you want to have a worldview centered on Christ, you can't just go with the flow. And so last week, we we started talking about this idea that that every single one of us in this room, online, wherever you watch it, has a worldview. And your worldview, whether you realize it or not, like it or not, is a collection of these three things. Your context, where you live, where you're born, your family, so on and so forth. Uh, Your belief systems, whether that's a lot of beliefs or very minimal beliefs, beliefs about the supernatural, the metaphysical, the physical, whatever it is. And then your actions, what do you do with it? And then Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians, he's saying the, the worldview needs to change for many people in the church in ancient Corinth. 
because they were being pulled away from Jesus as the center of their worldview. They were getting perhaps a little lukewarm in their beliefs or they were getting uh, swayed by the current of culture and their actions to where they weren't actually living out a Christ-centered worldview. And so week one where we started this series is kind of like, hey, we all have a worldview and we need to check it. We need to make sure that we actually realize what is operating as the true north in our life. And week two, we're kicking off or we're continuing in chapter one, Paul's going to show us, well, here's why your worldview needs work. So if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter one, we're still in chapter one. Some of you are like, wait a second, where were you chapter one last week? Yeah, trust me, we're going to be here a while. It's going to be 20 something weeks, book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, seventh book of the New Testament, which is the back half of your Bible. Uh, for me, it's on page 1445. That probably doesn't help a majority of you. Uh, but in case you're wondering, that's what page it is on for me. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to gift you one after service. Head to Guest Central, our gift, an additional gift to say thank you for being here. But every single week we open the word of God together because we believe, as we just sang, that he is our firm foundation and we find out more. First Corinthians chapter one, we're starting in verse 17. You can follow along in your own scripture with me this morning. It says, for Christ did not send me, me being the apostle Paul, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness. On the count of three, say foolishness. One, two, three, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made the foolish wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles. But to those from whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul is setting up this, this dichotomy here. And now if you've been following along, you, you kind of picked up on it. There's a, a wisdom of the world, he says, and then there is a foolishness of God. There's the foolishness that is Christ. And he's kind of saying they are at odds with each other. They cannot intermingle. That's why God or Paul chooses very distinct words. He doesn't say one is wise, the way of the world is wise, and the way of Christ is wiser. He doesn't say one is right, the other is Writer, which some of you grammar Nazis just kind of freaked out, right, okay? And he's kind of saying, no, 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 that's why he says that there's the wisdom of the world that is trying to convince you to follow its path, to follow its worldview, but then there is the, as he kind of plays on words, the, the foolishness of Christ, the foolishness of the gospel, the foolishness of Jesus, which is its antithesis. And he, and he plays on this term. He, so he begins to call it the, the clever wisdom of the world. And also, if you're a note taker, you can write out this phrase and follow along with me. And so he begins by saying, in your translation, it might have said eloquent speech, clever wisdom. Uh, at one point, mine said here, da, 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 the eloquence of the world. Okay, So this idea of clever wisdom is the phrase. This word clever is the Greek word, I kid you not, Sophia, okay? 
So if you are named Sophia and you're in the room today, I'm not talking about you, okay? Just want to clarify that this morning. And he's saying so, and this word though is defined as the things of man. So he's saying, so, so, so many of the church in Corinth, they are, they are enticed. They are drawn away from Christ because of the Sophia, the clever things of this world, the things of man. And this word wisdom is actually, actually means to become an expert. So at the end of the day, he's saying that, that, that many in the church in Corinth, they're chasing after Sophia. They want to become experts in the things of man instead of the things of Christ. And he said, this is a problem. Because the, the things of man and the things of Christ, they're often not on the same page. They're at odds. Think of the Sophia, if you will, of our world and society. The things of man tells you things like, well, you're awesome. You're amazing. You're great. You can do no wrong. Just go listen to your heart and whatever comes, just go with it. The foolishness of the cross, of the gospel says the opposite. It says, oh, no, 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 no. You are not strong. You are actually weak. You are perishing. You are a sinner. You are doomed. You need saving. You cannot save yourself. This is a big tension in our society, is it not? Arguably the greatest Sophia that is out there says if it, if it feels good, if it seems right, then it must be so. And Paul's making the similar argument to the church in Corinth just because it feels good in here doesn't mean it should be a center point of your true north in life. When I was a high school pastor, uh, we used to play all these games on the screens, and uh, one of the games we used to play all the time was called Taylor Swift or Lamentation. And then the rule was simple. We would put a, a line on the screen, uh, and, we, and we'd say, okay, is this a lyric from a Taylor Swift song, or is it uh, from the Book of Lamentation? The Book of Lamentation is like this, this woe is me letter. So we're going to play this morning. So I need some crowd participation, okay? Some of you are like, yes, I love this church. This is awesome. We play games even in big church, which is why we call it big church. I don't know. So well, you know you call it that, okay. So here's the first one, okay? I'm gonna read it, and then I'm gonna count to three, and you just shout out either Lamentation or T-Sweezy, okay? Either one. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember it. The feeling of hitting the bottom. Three, two, one. This is from the book of Lamentations. I kid you not. Now, we, we take it from the message translation, but okay, I'll give you one more. We got, we, we got one more. Ready? Here's the second one. Okay? These walls that they put up to hold us back will fall down. The time will come for us to finally win, and we'll sing hallelujah. We'll sing hallelujah. One, two, three. This is Taylor Swift. Some of you are like, oh, okay, you would do it and do them back to back type of deal. <laughs> and the reason we would play this game sometimes, and we make this point, is sometimes it's hard to differentiate. What's, what's the difference between wisdom of the world, stuff that sounds good and feels good versus what is true? What is true north of, of our life found in the word of God? You see, there's a reason that the apostle Paul, he's writing to say, you don't need just reason 
or rationale or logic to arrive at God. You need something different, you need something better, and that something different and better is what is called revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but revelation, a revealing. And that's what he's saying, is that revelation reveals Jesus. If I wanted to go real Southern Baptist, I would say revelation reveals the resurrected Savior, get all those R's in there, but you know, to save us time. You see, what we need in order to have a Christ-centered worldview, as Paul is, is writing to this church in Corinth, he says, you don't need to necessarily think harder. You don't need to necessarily think outside of the box. You don't need to arrive at some different intellectual ascent. You don't need to follow your heart. What you need to do is step into the revelation of how God has revealed Jesus to be your true north. There's two types of revelation that happen in scripture. There's number one, what is called general revelation. And what general revelation, Romans chapter one, is that God has made himself known throughout nature. That feeling for truth, that that feeling for for absolutes, that there is a, a sense of right or wrong in your heart and in your mind is a result of general revelation that all of us believe, whether we admit it or not, that there is a sense of a moral law, therefore somebody had to give it. That is general revelation. But then we have something better, something more specific, which is called special revelation. That is God sending Jesus to this earth. We have the written word of God specifically given to us to know God, to seek God, to find him, to understand him, and live that life of a Christ-centered worldview. Pure reason, logic, rationale, the Sophia of this world, of this time in life will lead you away from God, not towards him. And he pulls on two groups of people who understood this. He said the the, the Jews, they wanted signs and wonders, and yet they still rejected Jesus, even though they got him. The Greeks, they wanted knowledge. They wanted more information. They wanted something to read, something to study, something to to dig their, their brain cells into. And God's saying, I gave them both. I gave the Jews Jesus in the flesh. He came down, he preached, he fulfilled the prophecies, he was there with them, and they didn't want him because they did not like what he did. They did not like what he said. They did not like the fact that King Messiah actually died and didn't establish a political kingdom. He's saying, I gave it to them even though they asked it, but they didn't like it because it went against what they wanted to know or want it to happen. He said, the Greeks, they're asking for all this knowledge, this intellect, this wisdom, and I've given that to them too. But they rejected it. Because in their mind, gods don't die. In their mind, gods don't serve their worshipers. They exist to be served. They received it, but they just didn't like it. Because it was going headlong against the Sophia of their world. That's why the Apostle Paul says the cross is is foolish. Because sometimes we think we can save ourselves. We think we can think our way towards God. We can nuance Jesus just enough, just right. And, And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You either get the power of God or nothing. As the great theologian 
Scholar C.S. Lewis put it, he said, when it comes to the gospel, it either has to be of the utmost importance in life or of zero importance. It can never be of medium importance. And so to the church in Corinth, Paul is saying, you failed to understand the power of God, of Jesus, of that foolish gospel. Not because you haven't known. Not because you haven't been shown, but because you're chasing after the clever wisdom of this world, the Sophia, not the foolishness that is God. You've missed out on that power. You've missed out on that opportunity. Like, like imagine on the way home today, you pull up to a stoplight, and you're pulling up behind like a GT500, which is a really, really fast car for those of you who don't know. And you see the tops down and the nirvanas blaring. You're like, oh, this person is just living. And there's this old lady sitting behind the wheel, right? And you're like, man, I wish she was my grandma. And the green light goes and she's just like, gives you a nod and then just goes, me, and takes off like 10 miles an hour. And you're just putzing around town. You'd be like, can I trade you? I'll go buy you a Buick and I'll, I'll trade you cars. Right, like she's not tapping into the power that is there. And Paul is saying is that when you claim Jesus, when you know the gospel, but you don't tap into its power to be true north of your life, you're driving around with a lot of horsepower left back home. He's saying a lot of us, we are leaving that power behind because we've been swayed by clever wisdom, not the foolishness that is the gospel. He goes a little bit further explaining that foolishness here, picking up in verse 26 this morning. He says, so brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were raised by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. That's his way of saying you're a bunch of average people. Let's be real here. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He's kind of pulling on their idea of a worldview. He's kind of pulling on this idea that, that you are nothing and you, you, you went about life and you had this concept of God, yet you've, you've pushed it aside because it didn't match what you think. And so this is what he's kind of saying. This is an illustration. I'll use this more. So, so he's kind of saying everybody kind of has their own little God box, okay? So imagine, these, and what we do sometimes is we say, okay, here's this God box, but I'm going to curate God how I think God ought to be what God ought to look like, how he ought to operate, all those types of things. And so we say, okay, um, well, well, definitely I want, my, I want my God to be loving. Of course, right? We, we want to have a loving God. And, and, and I want my God to have, that's a really bad circle, meaning and purpose for the world because why else will we be here? Aren't they? Um, but also when I think about God, you know what I don't like? Um, I, don't, I don't like the concept of hell and eternal damnation or anything like that. And so I, I don't want my God to, like literally when it comes to that, like let's just pretend like that doesn't exist. But if he's all powerful and he loves me, he wants to take care of me, then, then God definitely, part of his job is to make me wealthy. He needs to make me rich. But, but at the same time too, I lost a, a love young one when, when I was uh, uh, younger. Or, and so this whole idea of pain and suffering and turmoil, that has zero place when it comes to who God is. And so, so what Paul is saying is, is what the church in Corinth has done. 
You've taken the attributes that you think God ought to have and, and you kind of put them into this box. And you say, so, so, so God needs to be loving. He needs to have a plan for the world. He can't, you know, concept of hell, that's not nice. That's not cool. And then, and then all, all, but he's got to make you rich and he's got to get rid of all the pain in life. And he says, so what we end up doing is we, we, we create a box and we place what we think God ought to be and look like and do in this. But then what happens is whenever God does something that's not in our box, whenever God acts in a way that doesn't match what's in here, whenever God's desire or truth goes headlong with what we have curated of what God ought to look like, how he ought to think, how he ought to do, what we have the tendency to do when we are following the clever wisdom, the Sophia of this age, is to say, well, there must be something wrong with God. The problem is not me. The problem is not what I think or feel. The problem is God. And because he did not fit into my box. The problem is him. The interesting thing about this is if you have a little God box that you carry around with you, and as American Christians, one of the biggest things that we don't like that is truth about scripture is the concept of hell. The concept that, that a loving God would be but judgmental eternally for people. If you took your little box and you go to a majority of places throughout the world and you looked inside their God box, you would see the exact opposite. You would see they have zero issue with the problem of a just God. They would have issue with a graceful God. They would say, what do you mean you believe in a God that lets rapists go free? What do you mean you believe in a God who doesn't hold something against somebody, like doesn't discipline things? And so at the end of the day, it does not matter what is inside your God box because chances are it's gonna be wrong. And Paul is writing saying, if you wanna have a Christ-centered worldview, you must get rid of your God box. The Sophia of this world cannot match up. It does not add up to who God truly is. Oh, you who think you are wise in the world's eyes, just because it sounds right, just because it feels right, then it must be true. And the crazy thing about that, if you think about it, is that's dangerous because nobody can argue against you. We see this all, all throughout society, right? Like someone comes at you and says, well, actually, I don't, I don't believe what that is. Well, how dare you? And all you got to do is, is, is hurl some insults, label someone bigoted or judgmental, and all the other Sophias will rally behind them because we're all not supposed to have our feelings ever hurt. And Paul's saying that's a God box mentality. That's something that doesn't stack up. That's not something that lasts. The Sophia of our age today, we think we've progressed beyond a simple gospel. We think we are better at understanding and nuancing Jesus and scripture and what Christ actually meant than what Jesus said and did himself. We think we've arrived at new truths, new realities, better the way God actually intended it to be. In Paul's writing, he's saying, that's so dumb. <laughs> like, that's literally, he's just like, that's just so dumb. Think about how God went about things. He took what is foolish and powerless to reveal a new way of life. 
God chose, what Paul says here, God chose what seemed to be foolish and powerless to reveal a new way of life. That doesn't, didn't fit into anybody's God box back then of how the savior of the universe, the sovereign creator, triune God ought to act. Think of the foolishness of Jesus, okay? You ready for this? God says, all right, there's a problem down on my planet. I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna reestablish shalom. I'm gonna send one of myself in this thing called the Trinity, which all the people down there, they're not gonna be able to fully understand it or explain it, but I'm gonna send one of me. I'm gonna send myself in son. I mean, he's not God, but he is God, but he's not, but at the same time he is, but he isn't. But he's gonna be there. And he's gonna walk around. And for three years, he's gonna teach about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way, there's one way. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have heard it said, but I tell you that for three years, all Jesus talked about what it, it was himself. What a narcissist's person, right? How foolish that would be. Like if you're creating an image or a religion, you don't bring somebody where there's a very quick line that's drawn. Either this guy is a complete lunatic or he is what he said he is. There's no in between. There literally is no in between. You can't say, well, he was a good moral teacher, but he wasn't God. If he wasn't God, then he can't be moral because he walked around lying to people. That's foolish, is it not? powerless. God says, I'm going to use what is powerless. Every other God, pagan God that ever existed, existed in other form. You didn't actually get to see him in the flesh. You didn't actually get to touch the scars in their wrists. They didn't die. Even some of the popular world religions, their so-called messiahs just evaporated. But our God, our Messiah, died on a cross. The most powerless way to lose his life. It's because the the Christ-centered worldview that we are called to live with is backwards compared to the Sophia of this world. This world says, well, do what makes you happy. And Jesus said, no, no, actually surrender your life. Deny yourself. Be generous with your money. Serve others. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you find joy and meaning and happiness in this life. Our world says, live your truth. Whatever you think, whatever you feel, it is true to you. And Jesus says, nope, there is one. There is one truth and one truth only. Do whatever you gotta do to get ahead. The first shall be last and the last shall shall be first. As long as you're right, it doesn't matter what you post, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter how loud you yell or, or how judgmental or whatever, how, how, how uh, insensitive you are, as long as you're right, it doesn't matter. And the gospel says it does because if it's not done in love, you are but a resounding gong. So then people come along and say, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a moral example. He was an exemplary human. No, he wasn't. He was either Lord or he was a lunatic. There is no in-between. You got to pick a side. He was either severely disguided and hoodlumped a junk full of people 
or he is truly Lord. But what concerns me most about, about this idea of the God box is that majority of people today actually don't even have one. I read an article this week from The Atlantic, and, and they discovered this kind of interesting growing phenomenon. And they said so they were kind of, uh, they found this thing kind of happening over and over again. And they were looking at these surveys and they were following up with people. And one of the things they noticed is what they were checking on their beliefs about religion. So they interviewed one person and they said, hey, we noticed that you, you checked other and you wrote in this. And I'll get to that in a second. Uh, help us understand how you got there. And they said, well, I was doing the survey. And when it came to that, I thought to myself, well, uh, I definitely don't believe really uh, in some sort of like Christianity or, or, or established religion. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably atheist. Um, and then they're like, well, actually, I kind of believe in some sort of true north morality, but I don't really know where it comes from. So I guess I'm agnostic. And then they're like, but that, you know, I'm not really confused because I kind of know what, what my stance is. And so this is what they wrote in. And this is a common, common thing. And this is what it is, ready? They went to other and they checked and they wrote in, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care about God. I don't care about morality. I don't care about any of that. That's just not important to me. Like for centuries, the pursuit of truth was existential. It was outside yourself. It was like the X-Files, right? Da-da-da-da-da. The truth is out there. Now, yeah, meh, whatever. That's how people are going about life. They're just shrugging all their way through life. I don't really care. I don't really, I don't, I don't really care. The six out of 10 Americans' article began to say, no longer believes that truth is found in religion, God, or any form of spirituality. They went on to say that those six out of 10 also believe that there's no true north, no guiding moral absolute in life. They believe that it all just comes from you, what you think, what you feel, what you believe. We say, well, Eric, that's, that's out there. In the real world, it's scary out there. Do you go out there? And I say, no. Just kidding, I do. Same study showed that four out of 10 evangelical Christians, aka people who would claim to take the Bible seriously, do not believe in absolute truth. Truth is in my heart. I listen to my gut. I just kind of go with the flow, whatever makes me feel good, that's what it ought to be. Where the prophet Jeremiah was quick to write, the heart is deceptive and wicked beyond all things. Did you realize how dangerous that is? When you talk about views of sexuality, when you talk about views of gender dysphoria, when you talk about views of economics, when you talk about anything that our culture is wrestling with, a lack of a moral compass a lack of a fundamental absolute truth can be the, the cornerstone reason of why there is so much hate and bigotry and insensitiveness around it. We need to begin to always think biblically to filter everything through Jesus, not through our feelings. Put it this way, we need to submit our feelings to truth instead of truth to our feelings. But hear me when I say this, and, and, and you can't miss this, is that as Christians and as the church and as disciples and followers of Jesus, we use our truth and we use our actions as a bridge, as an example of Christ's love for the world. We do not use it as a bludgeoning tool. We do, we do not use it to yell hateful remarks we don't use it to picket. 
We don't use it to post insensitive stuff on social media. Like whether somebody is confused or searching or lost or they just flat out don't care, we care for them. Do we not? We love them, do we not? Because Christ first loved us. In our world, you are Christ-centered. Standard of the truth says every single person is valuable. Every single person can be redeemed. Every single person has a spot in the kingdom of God. Do whatever you can to welcome them into the family of God. We care about them. We desire them to leave behind that Sophia to find the truth, the foolish truth, the beautiful truth, the powerful truth that sets them free. Paul closes out chapter one and I'll close out here my time as we get ready for a time of communion. He says this, starting in verse 30. He says, it is because of him, talking about Jesus, that you are in him who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, in our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Translation, you don't need more knowledge. You need to put your knowledge of the truth into action. You don't need more wisdom of this world. You need a faith that moves. Embrace the foolish. Embrace that you're weak. Embrace the fact that you need Jesus. Embrace the power of the cross. And what Paul's concern for the church in Corinth, and sometimes my concern for this room, and concern for for churches across America sometimes, is that for all of your knowledge, for all that you know, for all that you can recite, for all that Jesus has shown you, you might not actually know Jesus. And he says, so, so you want to know how you can determine? You want to know if you're following after Sophia or if you're following after Jesus? Ask yourself this question. And I encourage you, think about this question. Talk about this question on the way home. If you want an application point for today, Talk about this with your family. Talk about it with your kids. Talk about this question, what do you boast in? Because chances are, what you boast in is where you find the most meaning, where you find the most fulfillment, where you find the most joy in life. And there's a lot of good things that we can boast in that still aren't Jesus. And it's not wrong to be proud of your kids. It's not wrong that they, that they I don't know, want a spelling bee or whatever, never going to be my kids. But, you know, it's not wrong. But at the end of the day, what do you boast most in in life? Do you boast in your knowledge? Do you boast in how many letters you have at the end of your name? Do you boast in your gut? Do you boast in wisdom of this world? Do you boast in your feelings? Do you boast in your wallet? Do you boast in your 401k? Do you boast in your square footage? What do you boast in? Or do you boast in Jesus, the foolish gospel? Do you boast about how amazing that it was that his grace came to save and redeem you? Do you boast in your weakness? because it is a chance for him to make you strong.
close with this thought. This is the foolish gospel. That God is for you. And he is also in control. He wants to be the center of your life. Not just the center of your Sunday, not just the center of a couple things that you deem appropriate. He wants to be the center of it all. But you have to trust in Jesus. You have to trust in the power of the Christ. Not yourself, never Sophia, never the wisdom of this world, but boast in Jesus, in Jesus alone. As we continue to worship this morning, we're gonna put a timer on the screen here in just a few moments and we invite you to partake communion. The elements represent the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Use this time to boast in in him. Boast in what he's done for you. Boast on how he died on your behalf. Boast in how he rose from the grave. Boast that his spirit lives in you as a person of faith. If you're here with us this morning and, and you're searching, you're seeking, you're trying to put dots together, spend this time thinking, what do you boast in most? What's the true north of your life? Is it the things of God, the foolishness of the gospel, or does the clever wisdom of this world? We'll leave you this time to pray, to reflect, to boast in Jesus.